0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.
1: Thank you for coming to this breakout session on China. Uh, I'm Andrew Walder. Uh, I'm a professor of sociology and uh, senior fellow at FSI. Uh, All of us on this panel today are uh, uh, members of the Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center at FSI. Uh, Before I introduce the panel members, each of whom will give a brief 10-minute presentation and then open up the the floor for discussion. I'd just like to briefly characterize how we're going to approach this issue today. Um, China uh, is in many ways a unique transitional economy. It's one of only two transitional economies, that is, economies moving from a a planned socialist system to a market economy, one of only two, the other being Vietnam, that has experienced very rapid economic growth from the outset of this transition, all the others Uh, have experienced transitional recessions. Um, It also uh, is arguably the fastest growing economy in the world over the last 20 years, yet at the same time there has been very little regime change, almost no formal change in the institutions of governance. Uh, And these seem to be contradictions to outside observers. These seem to be creating uh, contradictions that are irresolvable in the medium uh, and long run. The way that China is often presented in in the mass media and in many scholarly um, analyses is that it has faced a series of crises over the past 20 years. Uh, Crises often referred to as the problem of mounting political protest and social unrest, which is seen as an inevitable outcome of this kind of transition. Problems, of course, uh, with the environment, Uh, problems created by uh, widespread unemployment as the state sector which used to guarantee employment for urban workers is restructured and privatized. Uh, And a 10 percent growth rate which has seemed to have held this entire house of cards, seeming house of cards together over the past uh, 20 years or more, uh, is that sustainable? And if it's not sustainable, will China uh, uh, face serious political problems, problems of stability? Uh, We're going to address uh, these questions, a subset of these questions, really, and ask the following, Uh, try to sort out which of the issues um, are severe and which of them are not. Uh, We'll ask four questions, which of these widely noted crises or problems are in fact already solved, and we just haven't noticed yet. The second is which are well on the way to a solution. Third, which of them remain unresolved with no apparent resolution in sight? And fourth and finally, are these problems not are there problems not yet on the radar screen uh, that China will have to deal with in the future? Our, our panelists today will, as I said, will deal with a subset of these issues. Uh, the first speaker will be Scott Rosell, who's a senior fellow in FSI. Uh, he has a chair in agricultural policy. Uh, he will talk about – essentially about the sustainability of 10 percent growth rate in China uh, in the context of the transformation uh, of the economy from a plan to a market. Uh, the second speaker will be Jean Oi, who will talk about the process of corporate restructuring in China, the, the large state sector, which created uh, in the 1990s uh, – in, in the late 1990s uh, a big upsurge in urban unemployment, and she'll talk about how this issue has been dealt with so far. And Xiu Guangzhou in the Department of Sociology uh, will talk about the uh, often unobservable consequences of seemingly small-scale reforms like village elections and how these may be changing things at the grassroots in ways that we uh, uh, may not recognize until sudden uh, shifts in political uh, arrangements break out. Uh, So Scott, why don't you begin?
2: Thank you. Um, this, is, this is actually part of a, a larger project that we're taking on as the uh, social scientists that are interested in China uh, uh, here at Stanford. And it's, it really comes because we have sort of a unique set of characteristics, the, the people that are sitting at this front table is that we spend a lot of our time when we're in China at the grassroots, collecting data in villages. Uh, uh, visiting factories and uh, talking to workers and managers and and uh, uh, local leaders. And, and so w- when we see views of China that are in the popular press, right, choking on growth, <laughs> China reaches deadly extremes, food systems are beyond repair, China's teetering on the edge of collapse, it's going to starve the world. And You know, these are by newspapers and congressmen and faculty members in, in, in uh, esteemed, competitive, uh, uh, educational institutions. Um, there's, there's, like, uh, there's something that, that doesn't come together there. And so we, we decided we wanted to try to step back and really look at this and, and ask the questions, are these guys right? Are, are things so bad in the cities? And are things so bad in the countryside? Uh, I study the rural economy, and uh, Chinese have an old saying, when the peasants are hungry, they rebel. Um, uh, Are these problems so serious that China's about ready to implode? And and this is the message that gets conveyed in in many times. Or really, are what we're observing are growing pains of, of, of a toddler and as adolescents. Uh, I've raised three children and I, uh, they were perfectly healthy. They were, they were growing very fast. They were miserable creatures uh, at certain <laughs> stages of their development. Uh, you know, their teeth hurt and their, their hormones were, <laughs> uh, uh, were forcing them into, into these emotional ups and downs. So are we, is what we really are observing are, are just very natural growing pains. Um, and uh, uh, it's part of this growth process. So what I want to do today is, is do exactly what Andy. I'm not even going to repeat the questions. We're going to look at the successes and problems. Where where is China? Are uh, the serious problems? Which ones have they solved? I want to try to put it in perspective by asking these questions. On you know um, is what we're observing. Unique to China? Is it part of a historic process, or is these are, are what we seeing these very serious um, uh, uh, regime crippling uh, issues? Um. Let's start with industry and the rural economy, and you'll see the balance reflects my bias as, a, as someone who spends uh, uh, four months a year in Chinese villages. Um, but uh, I think sometimes it's really a matter when we're trying to assess how healthy the Chinese economy is, of putting out all the facts. You know, this is the engine, right, that's, that's pushing China along. The size of the economy in 2004 was 10 times that in 1978. It took the U.S. economy 100 years. From 1860 to 1960 to grow that much, um, uh, uh, and but in the midst of this, the Institute for International Economics in Washington has just come out with a new report that says Chinese uh, economy is in danger of stopping. The the re-rise of loss losses by loss-making enterprises is going to cripple the economy. Um, that said. <laughs> if we step back and look at all the facts and look at the rise of profits as a share of GDP of all industries of state-owned, this is over a GDP that's growing at 10% a year. This means profits are growing at 20% a year of all industries. They're growing at 15% a year for state-owned enterprises. This is a roaring economy. There may be weaknesses but in general uh, that I think when you try to step back and look at the, the whole set of facts is that, that you see a, a fairly uh, uh, healthy economy. I want to look at agriculture, right? This is where if you look at the New York Times, it's this brewing kettle of unrest that's ready to you know, explode and bring down uh, uh, the, the, the peace and stability of the country. Uh, it's important because it's the home of a billion people and almost all of China's poor. This is the challenge right here, (laughs) okay? This is the challenge. Uh, The average Chinese farmer has one mu per capita. The mu is from uh, 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 zero to the 12 extremely small farm size. Uh, There's five people per household, so they have a football field. I, I often say, that perhaps the best use of Stanford Stadium this year is to use it as Chinese agriculture rather than as a football field. Yeah, I know. We'll be back. We'll be back. Exactly. Uh, 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 How do you make an economy based on uh, a land size profitable? Is it healthy? I look at three things, new technologies. Um, uh, can, the Chinese, can the Chinese farmers get more off of this very small uh, amount of resources? I, I look at this as sort of, of how China is dealing with. China is now investing half a billion dollars a year in plant biotechnology research, the most advanced <coughs> agriculture research in the world. They're outspending the U.S. government two to one uh, on plant biotechnology. Um, the United States has a big private sector, so we're still investing more in total, but the Chinese government is, out, is spending more than all of developing countries, India plus Argentina plus Mexico plus South Africa uh, plus Brazil, uh, all put together uh, in, in, in the most advanced agriculture technologies. And it's related in very healthy, normal growth. About 2% a year from 1979 through 2005, the Chinese are getting more output out of the same amount of inputs. Their population is growing at one percent a year, or less than one percent a year. That's why China remains a net exporter of food. Uh, they're exporting more food than they're importing, even with 1.3 billion people. They're also marketizing. Are these little farmers getting the signals to produce what they should uh, 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 be able to produce? Um, this is data of prices every 10 days since 1995 to 2003. It's a little, little hard to see. And it's prices between Dalian, the big agriculture port in the Northeast, and Guangzhou, the big consumption port where, the, the, where most of the food is imported in the South. And it looks at prices of corn. Um, and what you see is before 2003 is that, the prices move together, but they, they move out of sync. Is that there's there's barriers to flows. But once we hit two thousand, you can see these prices they mirror each other almost identically. They're eleven dollars apart, eleven U.S. dollars. And you know what? It costs eleven dollars to put a ton of grain on a barge in Dalian and ship it to Guangzhou. Prices almost reflect each other uh, perfectly. If we that's prices over time. If we look at prices over space. We have research that was done at Stanford here that shows that Chinese move commodities across space now more efficiently than the United States. So they move uh, all their commodities uh, at a lower cost, at a a quicker pace than we move uh, in in the most advanced uh, agricultural country in the world. Um, And in response, Chinese farmers have started to specialize. Uh, uh, specialize in in the things that they do the best in labor-intensive horticulture and livestock and aquaculture products California farmers are worried about three things getting enough Mexican labor dealing with environmental policy from Sacramento and Chinese competition because they know that these small little farmers um, uh, even on they don't have to farm in uh, on Palo Alto farms but uh, uh, that they're, they're very competitive and the question is, is can they expand their farm size from these very small little plots into manageable uh, um, uh, size of farms that uh, can give their families the resources that in the next generation these poor families can accumulate enough wealth to send their kids to school that they, they drive China's uh, development process forward. Um, in, in 1988, there's virtually no land rented inside China. Uh, by 2003, there's 14 uh, percent, in other words, that there's opportunities for Chinese farmers to expand this one football field to two football fields to, to a, a, a very large size farm. So when 14 when percent of a nation's cultivated area is rented, is that a lot or a little? Um, As we see, comparing them below, is China is far beyond any other developing country in the world in terms of letting its poor farmers access this land. It's um, uh, uh, catching up, surpassed Japan, and and is headed towards uh, Europe and the United States. You see in the richest provinces of the West, the amount of rental activity rivals that of of, of, of California. And so this is an economy that's flexible and it's healthy, and it results in 6% income growth for rural, uh, uh, for rural families a year. Not only the richest of the rich, which have grown very fast, uh, uh, but even the poorest of the poor have grown over time. This is an economy that, despite what you read on the front pages of the Washington Post, is a, is a healthy part of China's uh, economy. Um, I think that I'm going to make two more sets of comments and then get, turn it over to uh, to my colleagues. And because, but what the, the next thing I want to say is, wait a minute. If you've been to rural China, it doesn't look like this rosy colored picture that I just described. It's still a very poor place. There's a hundred to two hundred million rural workers that are doing nothing but working in sweatshops. There's there's no other, there's nothing else you can call them. Seventy hours a week. 28 days a, a month, excuse me, two dollars a day. Uh, uh, th- these guys work very, very hard, but the, so is that a is that basically a sign of of collapse of stress or you know what happens when you you compare that to the options? Would they rather be out tending a plot or working in those factories or trying to scratch a living from other ways? There's a generation or two in every developing. Country that really sacrifices themselves in this process of development. Moving to the cities. Would you rather live in this pristine countryside or these ugly, you know, uh, crowded cities? This actually is taken. This picture is taken from the exact same point, uh, 20 years apart. Right. This is uh, this is this is what 10% growth gives you. Right. Um, uh, uh, and and it, it's. Uh, and migrants live in these very difficult situations in the city, right they they it's it's not very nice, but the question is where would they be living otherwise right in in huts with without heating, without lights and and so I think that when you get the right perspective, what's happening isn't necessarily uh, uh, the 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 dire consequences and and in fact, we had a paper in, in this conference we had on growing pains recently that said that the rural people in essence are happier than their urban counterparts, mainly because they see their future being brighter. And sometimes there's very serious problems that you cross your fingers on and hope uh, that it's a matter of time that they'll be resolved because this is the real growing pains that that I think is the one we have to consider the most. and say, what is this? <laughs> uh, this is the view out of my office building, looking at the, the western hills uh, on, on most days in northern Beijing. It's, it's not a pretty sight, um, uh, the, the very heavy smog. There's water pollution, the cutting down of the forest. Uh, you know, is China going to sort of degrade itself to death? Economists look at this and step back and say, well, wait a minute. You know, it, every single country, this is called the Environmental Kuznets Curve, which says when countries are poor on the left-hand side of the axis, environmental degradation is always going to happen. It's once they get to a certain level of income that pressures of society and civil society and, and the necessities of getting the, reducing the cost of pollution uh, affect a change in society that they start to improve their environment. Can China do that? I mean, this is every other developed country in the world has followed this path. The question is uh, you know, will China do it? Um, Stanford's been involved with some, some very intense work uh, of, of, of grain for green and forest protection um, to try to look at have they turned the corner in forest management on the environment, uh, environmental uh, uh, protection, um, on the forest uh, management side. And what we've seen is over the last 10 years, less than 10 years, China has planted more area to forest than all the rest of the world combined. They've put about 10 million <laughs> hectares. Uh, uh, it's about the size of Oregon. Uh, they've, they've planted under densely well-managed forest all over the country. It's spread, spread everywhere uh, uh, across China. They plant trees. They eliminate cultivation on steep slopes to reduce erosion. And according to our, our surveys, is that the, the households that have been given payments to do this are now starting to transform the way they do agriculture and the way they manage their lives and help them move into the cities to take the pressure off this forest into the future. So it's a sustainable livelihood. So in forests, it appears as if the environmental Kuznets curve has already been hit. We the jury's out on the rest of the environment. What I say is I think that the critics need to say why it wouldn't happen in China while it it happened in all the rest of the world. Why wouldn't it happen in water pollution where it happened in forests? Uh, I'm optimistic. So this is what we want to talk about today. is China a healthy, growing economy? Is China's growth healthy for its people, for the poor, for the world economy, or is it on a brink of collapse? Uh, as you can see, I'm, I'm an economist. <laughs> Economists that have been in China for 20 years are optimistic uh, because we've seen the transformation. So, and I believe that when you put all the facts out there, when you're looking at how it's happening now versus what the alternatives are, and when you look at how most other countries in the world act, uh, at times in their development experience, at the same as China, um, is, is that uh, you become an optimist and say that these, that, that these cr- so-called crises that often are reported really should best be thought of as growing pains uh, that uh, are, are going to take time to work out. Uh, thank you very much. <clears throat> <laughs> <it> <laughs> Doubling as the uh, uh, technician. Here you go, Jean. And
0: Great, thank you. Well, the topic I'm going to be talking about is corporate restructuring. And I think here I am touching upon one of the um, areas where a significant group of people have had to pay a cost as China tries to uh, reform itself. And this is also an area where um, a lot of the um, observers have said, well, this is you know, gonna cause uh, significant uh, political stress uh, on the economic system, because this is sort of the source of a significant number of the protests that we've seen all over China. So what I wanna do today, is to uh, do exactly what uh, Ambassador Roy suggested we do this morning, and that is to try to get a balanced view of what is happening uh, in, this, uh, in, in China. So I want to provide a sort of an empirical assessment. Because it's very interesting that on one hand, there are a lot of us, including economists, who think that China's uh, gone too slowly in reforming its uh, state-owned enterprises. Interestingly, however, there has, in the last number of years, a group of uh, uh, critics that are emerging in China that we sort of call the new left critics, saying that the reforms have gone too far. And this is largely driven by the fact that they think workers have really lost out as a marketization uh, has increased, as privatization has um, taken hold. But what I want to show today is that, in fact, there have been very uh, distinct phases, and that China has been very deliberate in the way that it has gone about tackling what is pro- what is probably the most difficult problem to face a uh, to face China. And this morning, uh, Ambassador Roy was talking about how. The uh, economy would, uh, China's growth would affect the the, sort of the the political world. Uh, Here in today's talk, I'm going to be stressing how politics has really affected China's economic growth. Sort of like putting this uh, China's economic uh, agenda within its political context. And what you have happening is that you have two distinct phases of growth, and, and that the, the, the change really appears around 1997, approximately the time when China's trying to get into the WTO. And the major constraint is that, uh, and this is a legacy of its, of its past, is that China, like many other uh, developing nations, really lacked uh, supporting institutions, most importantly, Social Security. And it's this worry about what are you going to do with those workers that you're going to have to cut from the labor force in order to make its state-owned enterprises uh, efficient. And the losses that uh, Scott put up, that statistic, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that China's uh, enterprises were saddled with a lot of non-productive non-productive expenses. This uh, idea that's uh, this, uh, iron rice bowl, I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, Well, this, once you put it in a market economy, in an economy where you try to privatize, it doesn't work because you don't have the security for the workers that are going to be laid off. So that the, while there are no elections in China, be very uh, sure that local, that officials, both at the central and local levels, are very much worried about the political fallout if they try to change these uh, enterprises too quickly. So you have a very pragmatic politics of um, restructuring. You see uh, significant changes in the forms as well as the speed. And there's always this dual agenda. And uh, interestingly, I think that China really has uh, uh, you, you see sort of different things going on, sometimes even within the same company. So you'll have a state owned enterprise, but at the same time because it can't sort of lay off the, the workers, the parent company will continue to keep all the surplus workers, but it will spin out. Uh, its most uh, efficient portion, get it listed, and have it grow very rapidly. Now, let me just show you some of the, uh, sort of an empirical assessment, show you what's going on. As you see here, the speed of restructuring does not really take off until late 1997, around 19, uh, actually uh, right after the 15 Party Congress. Not only do you have a speed changing, but look at the forms of restructuring. And this is a, uh, a little bit hard to see, but the red, is the privatization. And one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that China, unlike a lot of the other reforming economies, did not grow because it privatized its state-owned enterprises. This was done very slowly. And again, it doesn't really take off until the very end of the 1990s. And what you have instead is sort of a collective ownership the shareholding. And that's because that was sort of politically uh, compatible uh, with um, socialism. But at the same time, you also see that over the course of the reforms that you do have significant change. You do have privatization, but it takes place slowly. So here's a, a picture of what happened to 500 state firms that were private in 1990, but by the time you get to two hundred uh, 2004, you only have a much smaller proportion that remain uh, public and this is probably the most important um, uh, one of the most important slides here you know you have this talk about um, and a lot of very vivid descriptions of how workers have really suffered workers are being laid off but if you look actually at the facts and look, go and this is based actually on a survey of looking what happened to workers in, in factories in five cities you see that in the most of the 1990s the state made a concerted effort to keep uh, most of the workers employed, even when you have restructuring, they did not just, you know, lay them off or throw them out onto the streets. However, you do have significant change. Again, look what happens um, by, uh, you know, 2005. We did another survey and it's almost the reverse. By 2005, you now have reached a situation where institutions, Social Security is in the process of being developed. And the firms that are wanting to restructure no longer have to keep all of its workers. If you want to sell a firm, buy a firm, you no longer have to commit to keep all of the previous workers. This is a major change. And so what you have here is that at the same time, as you can sort of basically the, the worst part is over, layoffs are actually uh, declining. Now, one of the other interesting things that's going on and one of the the, the critiques being made of China's restructuring by the People in China actually is that you know for economists, particularly for those who 've done uh, you know uh, looking at uh, um, uh, the, for growth and, and the best ways of management it 's important to have sort of the big stakeholder, in other words, to have manager having a big share well, for a long time, China resisted that, but again, by two thousand and five, you clearly see a picture where Firms are now being managed by people who have a major uh, stakeholding in the firms that they're working on. Uh, this has uh, gener- some, uh, generated some inequality between workers and managers, but at the same time, a lot, would, a lot of people would argue that this is actually very good for efficiency. So the overall assessment, where do I come down on this? I think that there certainly has been a lot of pain. Uh, certainly workers have, uh, uh, been, have uh, uh, suffered, particularly those uh, close to retirement, those in their late 40s, early 50s. These are the people that have had the most difficulty finding new jobs as the economy is changing. However, I think that because you still have a very strong state, this is still a very authoritarian system, they've managed to cushion the pain of restructuring by sequencing the forms of restructuring that have been uh, adopted over time. And they've done this and they've moved as the institutions have come online. Problems exist? Yes. Some of the uh, data that you know, Scott, sort of gave, already gave away the sort of the, the punchline. Yes, there's still a lot of problems. There's still surplus workers, including in some of the very large centrally owned state-owned enterprises that, that continue to exist. Um, they, they, the state still cannot fully stomach the idea of laying off some of these workers, so they leave them there. And I think the hope is that the, the rest of the economy is going to grow so well. Um, that they're just going to sort of be able to absorb that. Um, There has been concerns about the increased inequality between workers and and managers because of the shareholding, but the manager buyouts that were popular in in, uh, around 2003, 2004 have now stopped. Um, Mm -hmm. Other much very positive signs, uh, particularly in the large uh enterprises that are still controlled by the state you have a phenomenal increase in performance both in the 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 revenues held by the firms themselves and this is very important in the amount of taxes that restructured firms are now paying to the state and i would argue that this actually may allow Uh, China to have somewhat of a soft landing, that with increased state revenues, you can now fund some of the institutions that are needed to to help China make the transition, that they can then provide the Social Security, the health, whatever, um, for those workers who uh, have been uh, laid off. And so that with this uh, booming economy, they have essentially been able to buy an end to what I would call the social uh, contract uh, by uh, in in earlier times giving shares, giving very um, uh, acceptable severance packages to its workers. And as I showed you already, the 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 layoffs, the worst of it's over, and in a cutting edge paper presented at the conference we just had here, Albert Park is actually showing that there has been a significant decrease in unemployment in China. And that these uh, these uh, uh, reports that you often read in the press, I don't think they've really caught up with the actual numbers. Because based on a the 205 uh, mini census, um, we can see that actually in both and throughout the economy, but particularly um, sort of in the uh, urban areas, you have unemployment declining. And we also find that wages are actually going up in all sectors. So that with all of this money, the institutions are going to be able to be funded. The question is, you know, are there problems? Are they over the hump? No. I mean, there's still a lot of problems, and that is, you know, what's going to happen in different localities? Because a lot of what's going on in China is that you have tremendous variation, depending on the resources of specific uh, cities, of specific regions. So that's going to remain uh, an issue that uh, we need to address. Um, Pay a lot of attention to, and how then is the central government going to try to equalize the, the unequal resources that currently exist in different parts of China? So we'll stop here. Okay.
3: Scott and Jin has already given you a larger picture about the national economy and the corporate structuring. And what I want to do today is to really take you on a tour to a small corner of rural China and to observe and give some visual impression about village elections in that part of the world. So you may wonder, why do we care about village elections in rural China? Well, the old Chinese saying says that a falling leaf can tell you the coming of the autumn. So I want to use this small window to, to take a look at what will come up in China's political future. Okay, so this, this is my theme of this uh, uh, presentation. So first, some general back, uh, background information. Village election was instituted in late 1980s, but really took effect, become, re- become real in the late, late 1990s when the, the election law was revised and reinforced. Okay, so the general idea is pretty simple. That is, villagers have direct vote to select their own so-called village committee members typically three to four members. And these members constitute the governing body to deal with the daily affairs of this village. Now, this is the closest to what we call or conventionally understood as the democratic practice, one person, one vote, the right election of your leaders. Now, within the, the Chinese political structure, the Communist Party actually has different ideas. The idea is that it's so-called self-governance and the party leadership. A, contra- a contradiction in terms, many people point out mm-hmm. during my research. So the question is really there's huge debate among scholars, and, uh, both in China and, and, uh, and here, is what do we mean? What, what does this v- election mean? Does that mean really symbolic compliance, window dressing, or really mean something real in terms of political, uh, moving towards political democracy? Or someone will put it, maybe this is a trading horse. Some are importing the alien forces, and someday will, they will come out to change the landscape of political things in China. Well, for many years, this, this policy has been implemented for, for the last two decades. For many years, there are a lot of complaints about corruptions, the manipulation by the local governments in terms of the election process. And there are also complaints that villagers were not really involved. They were manipulated didn't care, or they, they were just simply cannot be, they would not be in control of this process. In many cases, such complaints, at least from my observation of this, this township, it, it was true for many years, but in the last uh, election cycle, which uh, took place last year, 2006, there were indeed fundamental changes in the last re- uh, 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 election cycle. So that's why I want to uh, take you on the tour to this uh, uh, election. Now one of the major change, as I observed, is that the change role of local government. The local government used to play a role of manipulating the election process and try to get their favorite candidates get elected. And it was, it was complained by the peasants. And when you talk to local government officials, they admit it openly. Because to them, this is the proud thing they did. They, they tried to select what they called their appropriate candidates. But this year, last year, when the last uh, election cycle uh, took place, I was there to observe. And I realized that this time, this time, the local government, the township government, put great efforts not to try to manipulate, to select their candidates, rather try try to reinforce reinforce the so-called procedural fairness. And this is a major change. And there are many reasons why it had had this led to these changes. I'm not going to... Uh, dwell on uh, this point. But I want to show you that this is one picture where most of people actually in in a picture of, from the local governments, uh, the township government organized so-called working teams. They were sent to these villages try to start organizing the election from the very beginning to the complete uh, finish. Okay, so they they were involved in every step of the way. So this is one one case where the, the, the official was sat down there to the end of this process, try to certify the election results, and sign his name. And then we this, uh, uh, f- draw the close uh, conclusion of this election process. In a different village, this is, you can tell the same uh, of, uh, officer actually here at the very beginning of the election, try to educate the, the villagers how to fill out the ballots. OK, this came every three years. So people forgot how to do it. Mm-hmm. And they have to re-educate them and tell them the procedures. And one of the interesting changes, because the government now withdrew from the political area, instead of trying to intervene the middle of the village affairs, it's now seen by many villages as so-called arbitrators, a mutual, a mutual force. So many times, especially when the village has a lot of controversies on many sides, they actually welcome the local government officials to, to come in as arbitrators. For example, here, this is a. A, a ballot uh, a voting room. No one is allowed to come, come in and, and, uh, unless you are the voter, but only the government officials, the working team members, can come in to help the illiterate uh, uh, villagers, the, the voters, to fill out the ballots. So this is one, this is one case where this, this woman on the, on the right side is a government working team member, help another uh, illiterate, illiterate uh, uh, voter to fill out the ballots. Am I coming back to you, like, the wrong oh, way? Oh, I'm sorry, ah, okay. And the local government officials, the paramount task for them is to make sure election carry out, the proceedings move on to the conclusion, and they spent tremendous efforts trying to make sure that the votes get, get cast, the committee get elected, the village committee get elected. And this is one case, mm-hmm. they actually, they resort to high tech so when you, they, in many cases, when they anticipate their controversies, there are, there, are, there are maybe disruptions and confrontations. So what they did that is they used soft intimidation by actually mm-hmm. videotaping the whole process. so the the, the, the government actually hired the you see the guy who holds a video uh, tape recorder, they hired this guy from the, from this private entrepreneur to tape record all the village uh, election proceedings from beginning to the end, for two purposes. First, as a threat, say if you try to in- disrupt this proceeding, I will put you on record. And second, of course, is that if there really something ha- bad happened, I can <clears throat> identify who really caused these troubles. Okay? By doing all these things, actually try to discourage interruptions to the uh, voting pro- pro- proceedings and eventually get the votes, gets vote casted get the committee elected. And sometimes, actually, they use much more naked uh, intimidation, where actually they, they invite uh, uh, they, the police station to send in their police cars and uniformed policemen stand by, just try to say, this is in one very contentious village. Everybody expects there'll be an explosion. People will fight with each other. And they, they, <clears throat> actually, they, first of all, the first thing they did is send in these police cars and uniformed policemen stand by and try to, in a way, to ensure a sent signal so don't mess up with me. And, and of course, mm-hmm. having, uh, uh, that actually moved on pretty smoothly. The other surprise to me, because I heard so many horrendous stories about you know, the way they, they, they carried out elections in the past, this time what really, uh, 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 struck me as really surprised, and, and I thought a major sign of success, is that procedures were followed almost to the letter. The, the government, especially at high levels, developed very elaborate protocols. From the very beginning, the first item, what you should do, you should announce this or that. Until to the end, you should certify your uh, ballots, you seal it, you should put a stamp on it, and you should put it somewhere. Everything is specified. In the past, no one cared about these uh, procedures. But this time, at least my observation is that everybody tried very hard to try to follow these steps just to avoid trouble, just to avoid trouble. Uh, So this is one case here, even when the election time approaches. And no one, actually, did not even show up in, in, very few of them showed up in the background. And the procedure has already started making all these announcements, just according to protocols. So they announce the election procedures, the composition of the election committees, and all the things you have to be careful about, and how you should should fill the ballot, everything. And until then toward the end, when they start counting the ba- ballots. When they count ballots, they have actually different groups. There are people who, there are team that they will make an announcement. The team inspects. Then all the villagers, interested villagers, if you want to stay and watch, it's open. It's open open floor. And most of the time, this counting was simultaneously <coughs> transmitted to the entire village through loudspeakers. So one ballot after another, they would just announce it over the loudspeaker. <laughs> and so this is a, another scene of this uh, 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 counting process. Now this toward the end of this process, when the of start to certify the results, they put their stamp on it, they sealed it, and then they will put in a specified safe place. Uh, so this is another uh, toward the end of the process. Now one of the things I found really, this is what we, we hope for uh, democracy, that is, the election provided occasion for people to voice their concerns, to voice their grievances. And indeed, election provided the legitimate confrontation among, among the villagers and or for the villagers to challenge the authority. This one, is this one village. The guy who sat there is the, was the uh, village, village head elected in the last election cycles. The villagers suspected he had has some corruption. So they insist that you uh, open up your account book Collective As asset account book and tell explain all, all the expenditures and revenues item by item before we cast our vote. And this is, this is what he was doing here. He was just basically telling the, the whole village what, he, what his committee has been doing in the last three years in terms of their finance. And by the end of that process, people accept that, people start vote, and he will vote out of the office by the end of that process. And sometimes these voices take very dramatic form. And this one, the presider and also the head of the village, another village, was, was presiding, and then someone just rushed to, to his desk, uh, to his uh, podium, actually challenging him and accused him of all kinds of wrongdoings. And this is uh, actually the police car is just outside in the background, mm-hmm. and people still don't care, still making all these challenges. <clears throat> one sign I thought is really significant improvement over the past as so you do see, I uh, certainly I observed. Very broad and enthusiastic participation of the uh, the uh, so-called eligible voters, and every in every you go, people treat it like a festival, like big events. Everyone rush to the, to the to the center, and they really have a good time. And uh, as as far as my estimate is, and, and many people co- collaborate on this story, that except there are significant proportion of migrant workers. Who actually left the village, worked in the, urban, uh, in, in the cities who couldn't come to vote, and there's a rules that if you, you, you if you're not there physically, you cannot cast your vote. Except this group, the majority of the eligible voters participated and voted. So the, in a way, it's a very actually it's quite a enthusiastic group. The next picture actually is, you can see sometimes they stay in a very long line, uh, wait sometimes with an hour to, to, to count votes, especially when there's really controversies. There's a con- contentious voting uh, competition among the, among the candidates. Then you have a huge number of people turn out, try to cast their votes to make statement on their own. So how do we make sense of these e- elections? I want to first just make observation. What I see last year was really successful, uh, much more successful than I anticipated. OK, I thought, I, I imagine a lot of bad scenarios. But uh, to my surprise, it was really uh, uh, successful in many, uh, many dimensions. Some of these are mentioned, But it took a long process to evolve to this point. Okay. So, so in that sense, we have to be patient. We have to allow the process to gradually build up its momentum. And for the, there are three major changes I see. I want to summarize here. First, the major change is really the role of the local government. In this case, especially the township government that moved from manipulating the process and the results to really become now a safe guardian uh, a guardians of the procedural fairness. Okay, they did this not out of their, you know, uh, so-called altruist uh, uh, purpose, <coughs> but for other reasons that constraints on their behavior. So they have they, they just try to avoid the c- bad consequences or what we call bureaucratic uh, brim avoidance. But really, let them to do their job in terms of pr- protecting the procedural integrity. The second major change I've uh, found is that peasants now realize that they could take their own fate in in their own hands through voting. Now in the past, they always thought that the government manipulated the process and there's very little say uh, in this process. So they didn't take it very seriously. There are many, many stories that they just simply cast votes whatever the government asked them uh, to put uh, on the candidates. But in the last cycle, certainly in at, at least Half of the villages I want, very contentious, a lot of competition, and villagers really take all these things, pretty much vote on their own, rather than certainly not manipulated by the township government, but certainly a lot of dynamics involved in kinship uh, 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 con- contest within the village. And the third major change I found really interesting is that in a, for a long time, the village leaders were pretty much subordinate to the township government. Because they were politically appointed by this township government, they get all the benefit from the township government. And before the the village election, the township government can remove them at at will. But because of the village elections, gradually they gained a new legitimacy from the bottom up, from bottom popular election, popular votes. So nowadays, you can see clearly, they, they boast their legitimacy much more from bottom-up process than from the top-down. Say, oh, the government appointed me, so that's why I can do this or that. So we see in rural China, the the basis of legitimacy for political authorities have gradually changed, shift towards more bottom-up processes. Okay. What are the implications for China's political future? Now, first of all, we have to realize that these village elections were practiced all over China, in rural China, that is two thirds of the Chinese population. They vote their own leaders. They go cast their one person one vote every three years, and more and more they are aware that they have real power in selecting whatever they, the leaders they, they want. And secondly, I think the important thing is this: that because the village elections put, village really uh, created a loose coupling between the village affairs and is grassroots uh, in rural China and the political. Uh, leaders in Beijing, it really allows the rural China to diffuse a lot of political crises. So a lot of political crises can be resolved at the local level mm-hmm. rather than everything have to be reported and dealt with at the higher levels. And that I believe will provide positive feedback to the top leaders and give them stimulus to uh, to push or extend similar elections or similar democratic democratic practice in other areas, for example, probably different corners of urban China. And if we we think about the history of modern China, rural China has often been the catalyst of social change in China. The land reform in rural China in the late 1970s initiated the China's great transformation we are still witnessing today. It started in rural China, not in urban China. And this is where I want to give my bet on this, That is, a village election may as well to provide another, uh, the launch pad for China's political change. The process will be gradual and slow. I'm not saying that will happen overnight, but I think it's really gathering momentum and it's really moving in the right direction. And on that positive note, I want to end my talk, thanks.